Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Bill and Melinda Gates. Um, the, they, they run a, a foundation called the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I've had some friends that have done work for them in the past. It's a massive, huge global organization that does a lot of really good things in the world. Uh, the, the kind of work that my friends did is they were working with diseases that are related to mosquitoes like malaria and dengue and stuff like that, trying to either stop them from happening or stop the effects from being as widespread as they are. Now, these two together have combined, uh, just, and this is probably actually even an old number, have given away $28 billion. That's how much they've given away. I mean, I don't know if <laughs> the combined salaries of all of us over our entire lifespan will ever really be $28 million. This is how much money they've given away. And we like hearing stories of people like this trying to create a better world. This is an admirable thing. It's something that is, is, is a good thing. We want more people like this. We're attracted to leaders who act in ways that we might say are good and just. We want leaders like this who are righteous. And for good reason. This is a good thing. But no amount of good, uh, either on our part, either in goodwill or good leadership, has ever created the kind of society that Isaiah talks about here in Isaiah 32. That's just never actually happened in history yet. We have a lot of really great people that have existed, but no kind of society like this has been, has been created, has been here on this earth. And so uh, the, what Isaiah talks about here, he talks about this better world. We're going to talk about that in a second. But not only does he talk about a better world, he also talks about a problem. The same chapter that talks about this better world tells us that we place our trust in empty things. So there's a better world out there but we're living lives of complacency and missing out. What Isaiah is going to try and do in this chapter and what he's going to try and do to all of us who hear these words today is going to try and shake us out of our complacency, out of our stupor, and have us captured by a better vision. This vision of a better world is just what Isaiah's audience needs at this point. So remember, if we remember a little bit of the history, we have um, Israel used to be a, a, a unified nation. Now it's divided. There's a northern kingdom. There's a southern kingdom. The southern kingdom, that's Judah, has been disobedient to God, and God, in wanting to discipline them and bringing them to himself, is give, brings them through judgment. And the way he's doing that is there's this really big, powerful outside uh, nation called Assyria. And they're going to come in, and they're going to take over Judah. They're going to take all the peoples, take all the lands. They're just going to do what they want when they want to these people. This is going to happen. And God is telling them that they will be conquered. And what they need now, because this conquering is going to happen, this disaster is coming, what they need is to be shaken from their complacency and captured by a better vision. Now, we aren't living during that time. We don't have to fear the Assyrians. They are long gone. Um, they're not going to conquer us or take our lands or our peoples. But these words really are no less true for us today. We can understand that our world is broken without much explanation. I don't need to give you illustrations. You know it. We need hope in our brokenness. Now, the problem is compounded because brokenness isn't something that just exists out there. It exists in here. It exists in here. Too often, we trust in things that are empty. An empty trust brings empty promises to real problems. 
Isaiah seeks to shake us out of our complacent stupor and persuades us to be captured by a better vision, one that gives hope for the broken. And so this is how he's going to do that. One, he talks about a better world, one that's ruled by a great king. And in the middle, he turns his words to us and tries to shake us out of our empty trust by kind of showing us where our trust is empty. And then uh, towards the end, he tells us how this better world will come, giving hope for us, the broken. But let's start with the good first. Let's start with the better world. Isaiah starts with the big picture, a better vision. Now remember, this is his mode of operating. This has been like the theme of our sermon series, captured by a better vision. He, what Isaiah's gonna do is he's gonna present the ongoing spiritual reality so that all those who hear will not be the same. And in the first eight verses, he presents a better world than we know now. He's gonna present a world that we all want to live in. We're not gonna really argue too much with this kind of world that, he, that he's presenting with us. We're gonna find that it's secure, that it's just, and that it's thriving. But before we even talk about the world, if you look in that first verse, there's a source of this world. It says, see, a king will reign in righteousness. There's a king that's going to reign in righteousness. Now, righteousness is a little bit of a churchy word. Uh, what does that mean? I don't use righteous often unless I'm quoting some kind of 80s TV sitcom from America. Um, but what does it mean? Well, it means to be ethical. It means to be just. It means to freely give. It means to have a joy in being able to provide for other people, to love others even when it costs much of yourself. Righteousness and justice is God's design for how the world ought to be. It's giving away billions of dollars. Now, don't we want all our leaders to be righteous? We do. But how many of us can name an MP that we would describe as righteous? Uh, I don't know. I've only been here six months. I don't This better world, though, has has an actual righteous king, one who truly is righteous, someone who uses his power for the good of others, not himself, and everything else in this world stems from the king. From this righteous king trickle down other leaders, and in verse 1 it says, end rulers will rule with justice. The king sets the tone of how these other leaders will rule. The king is the main body of water, the source from all the rivers and tributaries where they all come from. Now, this is a question in Isaiah that we need to kind of think about first, maybe take a step away. Um, When Isaiah is talking about a king, sometimes we can't tell if he's talking about an actual earthly king that's going to come, and we can see in history, oh, this is where this was fulfilled. Or sometimes he's talking about a king who's not just going to save Judah or Israel, but a king that's going to save the entire world, save everybody. That's who we call the Messiah. And sometimes it's hard to figure out if he's talking about the Messiah or if he's talking about some kind of king from Judah, because he often kind of intertwines the two. But because this is such an idealized, beautiful picture, um, there's no scholar that really thinks that this is some kind of future king just for Israel or just for Judah. This, what Isaiah is talking about here is this righteous king is one who is the Messiah, the one who will save everybody, the one who will rule in righteousness in a way that the world has never seen yet. This is the king. And what flows from the king? We have more rulers who reflect this righteous reign. These are people who aren't trying to escape rulers, but they go to rulers because they have very much to offer. It's a secure, a just, and a thriving world. So it's secure. If we look at verse 2, we see that we have shelter from the wind, refuge from the storm, the streams of water in the desert, there's a shadow of a great rock in a thirsty land. Now, the relief that you get when it's really windy outside, like yesterday was really windy. Sometimes if you're walking in town and it's super windy, you turn the corner and there's a building and it's like, there's nothing. Like, ah, oh, that was nice. Then you turn the corner again, you go bike right back at it. 
Or maybe it's the same thing if it's raining out um, and you find like a little awning or a dry spot to hang under until the rain stops. That's relief. And that's the kind of relief that these rulers will bring. There's also water in the desert. Without water, humans can survive for about three days, but in the desert, it's far less than that. And so what we find is in a really kind of harsh environment like a desert, there's water to be found. And not just small bottles of water, but streams of water. This is more than you would need to survive in a desert. We will have what we need to survive in this better world, and then some. There's also shade from the sun. So if we can't live with water for about three days, a lot of experts say in a desert environment like where Israel is, where Judah is, you couldn't survive more than three hours without some kind of relief from the outside world. In the desert, escape from the sun is crucial. I mean, I, I lived in Florida for a lot of my life. I think a lot of people think in the summertime, Floridians just like hang outside and walk around. And in the summertime, you escape from the sun. You're in one air-conditioned spot, and you go to one air-conditioned spot, and you go to another air-conditioned. You don't, you don't go in the sun because you're just going to be sweating, and it's just kind of nasty. And this better world shades us from what would normally kill us, or at the very least, make us sweaty. So we have wind, storm, desert, sun. These are all elements of nature that we can't control. And these are all elements that can be really harmful to us. Nature does what it wants to without consulting us first. And in, but in this better world, we're going to be protected. It's secure. And more than just talking about nature itself, and this is something that the Israelites would know on a very on a firsthand basis, these are metaphors for much larger things. There's a real security being offered here. Security in a harsh environment. So this better world is secure. <clears throat> it's also just. This world offers justice. If you look at verses 5 through 8, it talks about the noble and the fool and the scoundrel. Isaiah speaks of people who are called noble and who are called foolish. And often in our experience, there are people who are really foolish who are being lauded as noble. They are scoundrels. I just love that word. It just sounds like what it is. Scoundrel. Um, I feel like I need a monocle or something when I say it. Um, but there are scoundrels and there are crooks who end up being highly respected in our world just because they're in places of power. Fools and scoundrels are bent on evil. Fools speak foolishly. <laughs> That's an easy one. They take advantage of the poor. They leave the hungry with emptiness. They withhold water from the thirsty. They destroy the poor and the needy, even when their need is fully justified. The fool, the scoundrel, the corrupt. But in our world that we have, not this better world, in our world, oftentimes the fools and the scoundrels are in power, and because they're in power, people give them noble words. They call them noble. But in this better world, the fools and the scoundrels are seen for who they are. And in this better world, the, no the noble are seen as who they are. The noble do noble things. They don't stand on the backs of the poor. They stand on noble deeds. They're called out. In this better world, people's actions are actually taken into account that we would say is just. This world reflects a complete, utter justness. And to top it all off, this world is thriving. If we look at verses three through four, people will see, people will hear, hearts will know, <clears throat> stammering tongues will become eloquent. Again, we're talking about more than physical eyes or physical ears here. And one of the reasons that God is judging the Israelites is because they are spiritually blind, spiritually deaf, spiritually dull. That's the result of not following God. And in this better world, though, there is a reversal of that. In this better world, people aren't deaf or dull. 
Their senses are renewed. They're more alive. They're in tune with what God is actually saying. They can hear what God is saying. They can see what God is doing. Their hearts are renewed in such a way that they can know him, that their their heart's knowing. This is more than just a, a head knowledge kind of thing. This is a deep knowledge. I mean, I can look up a bunch of facts about Nicolas Cage, but at the end of it, the Wikipedia article doesn't mean I'm going to know Nicolas Cage. Maybe someday I'll get to know Nicolas Cage. Probably not. But I don't need to look up a bunch of facts about a really good friend of mine. I know him. I know him more than any Wikipedia article could talk about. This is a deeper knowledge. And it also says that stammering tongues will become eloquent. This isn't just a thing where we're passive and we receive all sorts of good stuff and we're just kind of empty, puppeted robots. This is a thing where we're active, we're participating, we're speaking in ways that are clear. It's a thriving world, it's active, it's teeming with life. So this better world is more secure, it's more just, and it thrives. And at its source is the king reigning in righteousness. Man, this is the world that ought to be. This is the kind of world that we all want to live in. This is the kind of world, if we're working for something good, that we want to reflect. But maybe it sounds like a fairy tale. There's no way this can be true. How is this possible? We don't have any experience of this. It's just too far out there. It's almost like if you read a science magazine in the 50s about what the future will be like, like we should all have flying cars and jetpacks and all sorts of like magical food devices or whatever, but it just doesn't seem realistic. It's too pie in the sky. But if we think of some, maybe some major developments this world has seen, and uh, it, before that development, the future seemed impossible. The future seemed unimaginable. Just think of before the microprocessor. How would you describe what the world is like now to someone who lived before microprocessors were existing? No computers, um, no cell phones, no cameras in our pockets, no Wi-Fi to complain about all the time. How would you talk to somebody about what this world is like? You, it, would be, it would feel to them like complete non-reality. It would be impossible. Or what about the world before electricity? How would you describe to someone in a pre-electric world what a world like today looks like? They'd be like, is this magic? We couldn't have conceived of that world pre-electricity, yet it's true. And how much better we are off because of that. Maybe let's take another step. What about a wheel? What about if you're living in the pre-wheel world, and then you talk to somebody, you know what, there's going to be this thing. We don't have to drag. I don't know how they got stuff from A to B. If they squares or uh, try, I don't know what kind of shape they used, or they just drag stuff. But just think how amazing it would be to live in a world without a wheel, Someone makes this wheel, and then now you live in that wheel world? It would have been unimaginable. Our, ma- our imagination would have failed us in this pre-wheel world, but yet it was true. Now, amazing as technology can be and these scientific advances can be, as cool as science is, no technology or science has ever given us a world like this. Science by itself cannot create this world. This is something even bigger, something even better than a technological advance, and it's true. So if you're having trouble imagining a world like this existing, it may not be a problem with the world. It may actually be a problem with your imagination. Isaiah is seeking to shape what the world could be like. He's trying to shape who we are by shaping our imagination. And before we go on, I just feel like we need to stop for a moment and just be in awe of this world. If we believe the Bible to be true, this is the kind of world that's being offered to us. This thing is real and it exists. We're made for this world. We want security, we want justice, we want to thrive, we want all these things. 
We want leaders who are sources of protection, not oppression. We as humans all respond to a world like this. We all want a world like this. But even with every step of technology, every human being who has ever existed, who's been a good leader, a good philanthropist, a good speaker, or whatever, has never yet been able to create this kind of world. And so the problem isn't that we don't want a world like this. We all want a world like this. It's like, what is the problem? Well, the problem is us. And this is where Isaiah goes next. After giving a vision of a better world out there, he turns his gaze to us. And he finds in verses 9 through 13 that we have an empty trust. He gives a picture of our trust in things that are complacent. You know, on first glance, though, because he's using the, the, the metaphor of a complacent woman, maybe we just need to take a, a quick question and be like, is Isaiah being sexist here? Is he caricaturing women in a way that is just is not right? I think that's actually a really good um, question to ask. Um, and first off, before we even talk about that, there's so many metaphors of uh, men not acting the way men ought to be, and that as a metaphor. Through Isaiah, we've talked a lot about those, men who trust in power outside of God, men who, tr- men who trust in themselves and how empty that is. We've talked about these. And the other thing to remember, too, is this is a book that's written in a different cultural time in the ancient Near East. So it was a very traditional culture. So in the ancient Near East, it was uh, traditional for the man to go and work and to govern, while the wife, the woman, was able to govern the, the uh, management of the house or the estate and things like that. And so I believe the reason Isaiah is using the image of a complacent woman first, instead of complacent men, because for sure there were complacent men in this situation too, is that complacent women were a level removed from the crisis of an invading country. He isn't saying that women everywhere are complacent, and actually he isn't saying there's a problem with women. He's saying this is a problem with everybody. He's just using the metaphor of a complacent woman. He's using the metaphor of someone removed from the front lines, and in this culture, that happens to be a woman who's, who's working from the home. I hope that makes sense. Um, basically, he's saying there's about to be a war, and we are all like a woman lounging at home, kind of blissfully unaware of our surroundings. Um, if you have more questions about that, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. We can't spend a whole lot of time, but it is a great question, and it deserves a good answer if, you're, if that's kind of going through your head, or maybe I just implanted it, so is that... So, (laughs) but the image of the blissfully unaware first is one of complacency. Complacency is a trust in things that are frail. It's 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 an empty kind of trust. It's like someone saying that Titanic is sinking. Like the world, the floor seems pretty good to me. I'm good. Or someone's the zombies are coming. They finally come for us. They're gonna get us. And you're like, "Ah, I got my Xbox and a liter of Coke. I'm good. That's an empty trust. Trusting of the floor of the Titanic does not help when the thing is sinking, right? Or when the zombies are going to eat all of our brains. When placed in reality, complacency is absurd. The way Isaiah puts it, putting your trust into one good harvest, doesn't make any sense because what's going to happen the next year? We don't know if there's going to be a good harvest next year. We just talked about how unstable and how scary nature is. We cannot put our trust in unstable things. So it is complacent. It's also focused on the short term. If their trust is in the current harvest, that's only going to last a year max. But it's easy to live in the moment when things are going well. This kind of trust is only possible if you're surrounded by good circumstances. But that's no way to plan for the future. You don't base retirement plans on that. You base retirement plans on market changes, good and bad. And this trust is ultimately false. Because bad times aren't an if, they're a when. This empty trust is ultimate, 
ultimately false. There's a guaranteed famine to come. Verse 12 says that we ought to be mourning for the fields that were once fruitful because soon enough there will become a land overgrown, not with crops, but with thorns and briars. This is a symbol of a curse. When God cursed man for what we did wrong first in the beginning of, in the garden, he cursed us and he cursed the land that we, that we worked with thorns and thistles. And now we see a land overgrown with thorns and briars. This land is going to be cursed. A land that once produced an abundant harvest, which is a symbol of peace and prosperity. Remember, Isaiah is talking metaphorically here, will now be abundant in thorns and briars. And the fortress where the king lives, this is verse 14, the fortress, that's where the king lives, the royal court, there'll be um, maybe even armies there, that's gonna be abandoned. This is a ghost town, it's deserted. What was once a thriving city is now a wasteland where random animals like walk around. Does anyone remember this city? Trust and empty things leads to emptiness. Abandonment leads to being alone, being forgotten. Our empty trust is something that might look good at first, especially when we are surrounded by good things, but when giving a second look, it turns out to be a lie. Um, there's a photographer in Thailand who created a series of images poking fun at Instagram users. If you're not familiar with Instagram, it's a thing you take pictures on your phone and you share it with your friends. Um, people often try and make their lives look way better on it, just like every kind of social media thing. But, uh, so, and she was kind of poking fun at this thing. So she has this image here of someone doing yoga. Hey, that looks really hard to do. I could not do that. Um, but uh, then when you look at the full screen, you see, oh, I could probably do that. So it looks impressive until you see the full picture. This is another image here of a workspace. Ah, oh, wouldn't everybody want to work in a workspace like that? Just think of the emails you could do. It'd be kind of zen-like. It's gray. It's kind of minimal. Um, man, I could work so hard right there. It'd be awesome. Get all sorts of things done. Until you see the uh, bigger image. It's like, that is not a place I want to be ever. Um, yeah. So the original posted image is just a small cross-section. And it looks silly when the full picture is revealed, doesn't it? And just like these pictures, our trust looks absurd when we put them in empty things. How silly it is for us to put trust in circumstances. And if we put trust in circumstances, we live in the tyranny of them. Will they stand under the weight that we put on them? And though it's silly and it's absurd, we still do it. I mean, think of how we use money. Money can be used for good, but we put so much of our hopes and dreams upon it for it to come through for us. It's never gonna come through for us in the way that we want it to. And we should hope for good circumstances, even ask God for them, but they were never meant to hold the weight of our security. Or the job that you count on or count on getting or dream of getting will never be the key to this better world that you're hoping for. If you're single, finding that person to complete you there's no way another human being on this earth can do that. Or if you have a family, the hopes and dreams that you put on your kids or, or on your spouse, they're never meant to hold the weight of that. And there is no lasting hope at the bottom of a pint. Beer is great and we should enjoy it, but it, it doesn't offer us anything more than that. A house of cards can't stand the pressure of more than a breeze, so what about when a disaster like this comes? Where is our trust? 
Isaiah gives us a picture of the world that ought to be, and we just received a warning about where we often put our trust when they're in empty places. And if bad things are on the horizon, what hope do we have? If this is how we trust in things, which is very empty, and we have that better world held out for us, is it just a carrot dangling just to have a squirm? Because we put our trust in empty things, we don't even have the capacity to hope in that better world. (laughs) What, what, What are we to do? Is there hope for the broken? We're shallow and weak. Is there any hope for us? I mean, what if the vision ended there? Done. End of the story. Close your Bibles. That's it. What if it ended there? But it doesn't end there. And in verse 15, we have this wonderful word. Till. Until. Find a glorious word. It changes the complete tone of, of, this, of this chapter. There is a time when this curse, this abundant curse, will not be true. There is hope for the broken. This better world will come, and Isaiah is actually going to tell us how it's going to come. There is a time that this will actually come into being. Don't we want to know when that's going to be? What does that until refer to? What is that time referring to? What defines this time of reversing the curse? It's till the Spirit is poured on us from on high. The Spirit of the Lord pouring down on us from on high. Now, this is a crazy Old Testament image. There's so much um, imagery that's going on here, but here's just maybe one that we can land on. I think if you have a full pitcher of water and you have a glass, just like a normal-sized glass, and you pour this full pitcher of water into that glass, it's going to overflow. If that glass is on the table, that table is getting wet. The floor is going to be wet. If there's anything on that table, it's going to be saturated. It's going to be covered. And this is what the Spirit of the Lord being poured out is. The Spirit of the Lord is going to be poured out upon that glass in a way that everything gets saturated, that everything gets covered. Nothing will not be covered by that water. Now, in other places of the Old Testament, it's a question of whether the Spirit of the Lord is talking about God as Spirit or is talking about the Holy Spirit himself. Um, now, most scholars agree, and I, I am inclined to agree with them, that this is actually talking about the Holy Spirit himself, which means this is God himself being poured out. And like the table that gets covered, this land is now covered. That means justice and righteousness are not just in the desert and the hard places, but they're in the fields and the good places as well, the good places and the hard ones. That means this is more than mere survival in the desert. This is thriving in the desert. And that means the fertile, fertile field that we thought was really good turned into a forest. It becomes even better. It's mature. It's growing. And just like the curse when we did something wrong, God cursed us and cursed the land we work. Well, this reverse is now happening. The spirit is poured out on us and this land is now thriving. And the effect of this justice and righteousness being poured out everywhere is now real peace and real security. So we get real peace and real security. This is a transcendent peace, one that is uh, bigger than our circumstances. The fruit of this peace in verse 17 is um, uh, peaceful dwelling places, places of rest. We have secure homes. That's in verses 18. The righteousness that comes from God's spirit leads to peace and security, the kind that we can actually be confident of, unlike that empty stuff that we were trusting on before. Even though there is disaster all around, there will be places to rest. It will be like after a long day and you're walking home in the rain and you're just kind of soaked and it's wet and it's cold and you just get in your house and it's warm. You take your shoes off, you get a blanket, get a cup of tea and it's just like amazing and it's peaceful and quiet. Or so I hear for families who don't have kids. (laughs) 
But either way, outside the rain is pouring down and it's pouring, but you are peaceful and secure inside. And this is in spite of circumstances. Because remember those circumstances that uh, we all put our empty trust in? The whims of nature, all those changing tides. We can actually have peace and security with whatever goes on outside. Hail is flattening the forest here. That sounds like the most intense hailstorm I've ever heard of. The city is leveled completely. When cities are leveled completely, nobody survives. And yet we hear of people who are thriving. We find real peace and real security for the people who are receiving the pouring out of the Spirit. And the pinnacle is in verse 20. It says, how blessed you will be. They have streams. They're productive. They're thriving. There's so much harvest that they can let their livestock range freely over the crops. They don't have to worry about food. There's not a need unmet. There is hope for broken people living in a broken world. And all these blessings come from God's Spirit being poured out. But there is a question here, because in verse 14, we see the, forest, the fortress will be abandoned. The king isn't there, but yet when the Spirit of the Lord gets poured out, we don't hear any talk about the king. So where is the king when this better world comes through? We had the king in the beginning of the better world. The king is the source of all the goodness. Where is that king? Where is the source of all this goodness? The king is not here. And reading through, it talks about the spirit pouring himself out, but no talk of a king. And that's because for the broken, our hope is not in an earthly king. Our hope is in a king who was once on the earth, but is now ascended at God's right hand. One who walked in our shoes and became like us and has offered his own life to us. This chapter in Isaiah is talking about the Messiah, is talking about Jesus, the one who will lead us into a better world. On the cross, Jesus is the one who poured out his life, emptying everything he had. Now, why would he do that? Definitely more to just be a teacher. If it's just to be a teacher, he failed. He died. He poured out his life so that we who are broken, who are in need of hope, the desperate people, might actually have life. Christ poured himself out at his death. And we can live in undisturbed homes of rest because Christ endured the hailstones of the cross. We can live in peace because Christ was leveled completely. He poured himself out for us, and that meant he died for us. Christ's death put to death our hopelessness, our brokenness, everything that we carry on us. But it doesn't end with his death because death couldn't hold him down. He rose again and he lives even now. He's actually still living. And the gift that he gave was actually God himself. He gave the gift of the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit. And now everyone who trusts in Jesus gets to have the Holy Spirit poured out on them. Just like that pitcher of water went into that glass. It's going to be overflowing. It's going to be more than you need to survive. Jesus poured himself out of the cross so that the Spirit of the Lord might be poured out on us. And this means we get new hearts, one that can truly know God. Hearts will know who God is. We can reject the empty trust our old hearts pined for. We see its frailty, and we place our trust on something much more than a house of cards, better than that. And along with our new hearts, we also get a new world. We get this new world that Isaiah is talking about. We get to be a part of this. The world we live in now is not always righteous, not always just. It's not always the kind of world we want it to be. But Christ leads us into a better world, one that we ought to be enamored with, in awe of. 
the world that we all want, the world that we dare to hope to be true, the one that we think is too good to be true, is too good, and it's true. Augustine had this wonderful quote um, that I think is very helpful when talking about things that are just kind of too good to be true and we don't see them revealed fully yet in this world. He said, the whole life of the good Christian is a holy longing. I mean, something that we don't actually get yet, but something that we long for. So we get new hopes, new hearts for a new world. Our new hearts mean that we can trust in the Lord in the good times and in the bad times. When disaster comes, and it will, we are tempted to sometimes demand something better for ourselves, thinking we deserve it, like God is some Santa in the sky, and if he doesn't give us our presents, we shake our fists and get all self-righteous and tell him that he doesn't love us. Now that's not longing, that's demanding. Or there's the other side. When disaster comes, we give up, we concede defeat, and we say, you know what, fine, this thing is ruined, and you know, I guess I don't really deserve this, and this world, it's just, we don't believe this new world is true. And that's not longing either, that's giving up. We're not called to demand, we're not called to give up, we're called to live in longing, and that's the hardest. With new hearts, though, this is one that Jesus leads us into. We don't have to rely on ourselves to, to, to summon up the courage and the strength to be able to do this because the same spirit gets poured out on us, lives in us, and allows us to hope in these things. And though hailstorms flatten forests, we will trust in the one who's overcome the storm by going through it through the cross. Though the city is leveled, we will trust in the one who has been destroyed and has overcome destruction. So do you tend more towards that type A kind of demanding intense kind of person and get angry when that world doesn't come through for you? Or do you tend towards that passive type B person just kind of give up too easily? Neither are the outworking of new hearts for a new world that the pouring out of the Spirit gives us. And so this is what hope for us is about, those of us who are broken, surrounded by brokenness within and without. We are captured by a better vision. And maybe sitting there, this world to you does still seem too good to be true. But what if it was true? Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be just incredible? That would be worth something investigating. That, that would be worth invest, spending your whole life figuring out if it's true or not. If it's truly true, it could be amazing. Of course, we as Christians believe there, it, that it is true and there is a better world for us. And that we place our trust in empty places, Jesus actually offers us real hope. Though the Spirit of the Lord pours out upon us, the broken people, he gives us new hearts for a new world. This allows us to reject our empty trust, and together we get to long together for this new world, and one day we will see it in, into completion. So let's pray to this Father who gives us this, and to Jesus who leads us in this, and the Spirit who pours himself out for us. Lord, as we come to you and hear these words, uh, no part of us 100% believes in this. Nobody here completely believes in everything that is going on. So Lord, for that we ask for you to change us, for you to change our imagination, for you to call us to a trust better than the empty ones that we trust in. And Spirit, we ask for you to pour yourself out on us in ways that um, would be new. We need renewal in our lives. Lord, for those of us who trust in you, we want to see how that renewing is working out. Sometimes we don't believe it. Lord, for those of us who aren't trusting in you but have heard these words, 
Lord, would you pour your spirit out? Would you bring us to know you in a way where we could say, our hearts will know you. I will see you. We, we will hear you. Our stammering tongues would become eloquent for you. We thank you for this better world you have held out for us. And we ask we might be able to reflect just a little bit of it here on earth. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Thank you.